This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Let's begin to dig in more. In this session, we want to take a closer look at why we sin, the way we sin, with whom we sin, for how long we sin in certain ways, but most of all, why it is so hard to stop and to repent. The want to is there. I don't think believers are lying to me when they say, Pastor Brad, I want to change in this area. So the want to is not what's missing. And that's what can be so confusing. It's the how. And I think very often the reason it's missing is people don't understand, I certainly didn't, where to focus and where to begin to work on root issues instead of just fruit issues. Because what breaks my heart and the reason I get excited to actually take the time to go other places and my sweet wife supports me as well as my church is that this is, this is pretty pervasive among even good Bible teaching, Bible believing churches. There's this dirty little secret of how many people declare a powerful gospel, a glorious savior, but if they were to be honest with you, there's places in their lives that they've really settled in and started to think, I guess this will just always be this way. And that's not to say that some uh, of the paths of repentance are not hard, hard, but they've settled in with impossible. This is never gonna change. And so this was not just for me, but many, many, many other people. So the stuff I'm trying to bring you guys is exactly the kind of stuff I do with my counselees. We're never done until we've talked about idols of the heart. And I'm, so that's where I am with this couple I'm working with right now, 13 sessions in. We're really trying to now, okay, here's what you do. Here's the things that have destroyed this marriage. But now I don't want to graduate you until you have a really good understanding of why. How did you ever get here and have new desires and a new plan of action and repentance so that you don't end right back where you were again. Heart, heart. So number one, here's why this is so serious and why we need to take time to ask God to help us see our heart issues. Idolatry is false worship. And so it flies in the face of God. See, idolatry violates the most basic and first of all commands, right? When God said to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. And as Bible-believing, evangelical, Bible-toting Christians, we can think, yeah, I'm certainly not guilty of that until you begin to be more aware of idols of the heart. You're like, oh, oh. Because idolatry can make a God, little g, of all kinds of things. You think about even our Savior, as he was here in the flesh doing ministry, interacting with people, preaching, teaching, you remember the religious leaders said, we're confused. There's so many commands and laws. Boil it down for us. Just boil it down. What's the bottom line? What's the great command? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. He grabbed that from Deuteronomy. And then he throws in a second. He says, the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He got that from Leviticus. And here's what you need to understand. Idolatry 
can cause you to violate both these commands. You realize that? It's not just how this upsets your relationship with God. When you're guilty of idolatry, it does mess up your, your vertical relationship with God. But oh my goodness, it wreaks havoc on your horizontal relationships with other people. Because you can't truly love other people the way you should, you begin to use people to help you get what it is that you're wanting. So that's why very often when the heart isn't right, not only, so the people that come to see me in counseling, they're not just having difficulties in the relationship with God, they typically have all kinds of relational, horizontal conflict as well, and they're so confused, what is going on? Now, of course, they always think the problem is all these people around them is the problem, and they just don't see and then often they're disappointed in God because they're like, all I want is a husband who would, all I want, Pastor Brad, are kids who, all I want is a supervisor or a boss who would acknowledge my gifts and my, they don't think what they're wanting is wrong and so they wonder why God isn't assisting them in getting it. And so lots of confusion surrounds idolatry. The very essence of idolatry is false worship because we're turning away from God towards something else. And so let's get a good definition of idolatry. I had it in your notes last night in the first session, but I didn't stop and say it with you. I don't have this, a Bible verse for this, but here's my definition of idolatry. When I go through the Old Testament, and I look at the New Testament, and there's a woman who knows it, so I'm gonna ask her to stand, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but last night she did say to me, oh, I think I can say the definition of idolatry. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. Say it again. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. In, in other words, it's living on substitutes. It's exchanging. We saw last night in Romans 1. It's an exchange that is not healthy. We exchange the glory of God we were made to live for the glory of God for something right here instead in this created world. We exchange the truth of God that we're made in his image and desperately need him and should build our worlds around for something else in this world. If I get enough of it, I'll be okay. And then there's this exchange where we take good things. This is what the example of homosexuality is about. Sexuality is good, but we twist it. Work is good, but we twist it. Children are good but we build our worlds around it. Whatever it is, good things. God's a good God. You realize our enemy, Satan, has not actually created or thought of anything. Think of some of the most destructive things in our world, right? It's something that God gave us that's good that's been twisted and perverted in a way that now it does destroy people and wreck your relationship with God. You and I were meant to live on God, but the bottom line with idolatry is that you're trying to live on substitutes, and, and it'll leave you disappointed, disillusioned, stay with me, and demanding more from people around you than they were ever designed to give. See, when you're not getting everything you were meant to get from your relationship with Jesus Christ, whether you realize it or not, that deficiency within you and that longing and that yearning and that hunger causes you to turn to other places in this world, which typically one of our first places is people around us. And what you need from them and what you expect of them 
is too much. And so it just crushes relationships. I see it with people who struggle in friendship or struggle in church or struggle in marriage or struggle with kids. You know, I see a dad who doesn't realize it, but he's trying to live his own dream of athleticism through his son. Right? Have you seen that? It's like, oh, trust me, sport, it's not just sports. You are going to be you're going to be this amazing running back in high school. You are going to get a scholarship. There's nothing wrong with enjoying sports. We know that because I love football. <laughs> but if something happened, right? I watch it with moms whose daughter is, is, again, none of this is a sin. It's not a sin to have a son who's a running back. It's not a sin to have a daughter who's a cheerleader or in gymnastics. But you watch a mom or a dad and you think, what is up? It's, all, it's over the top. It's excessive. The, and like I said, I reached back and said, this is not a new thing. Throughout history, there are godly people who have understood good heart issues. The Puritans write about this a lot. They called it inordinate desires. The desire itself is not sinful. It's just too much. It's out of place. It's inordinate. It's excessive. You are trying to get this to do what it was not designed to do. It can be on academics, you know, where a parent just pushes, pushes. Sure, you want your kid to not be an idiot. Sure, you'd like them to study a decent amount, right? But it's just this oppressive, you are going to score amazing on the ACT, and you are going, and it's, they've built their world around this, and there's a sense that what you're doing is my badge of honor, and I'm living out my life through you. And what happens? Does it help their relationship? Typically not. You'll watch a son or a daughter completely walk away. And I'll hear parents say, oh my goodness, they had a National Honor Merit Scholarship. They walked away from it all. Now sometimes kids are just stupid and they do that. <laughs> I've seen that too. But sometimes there was this dynamic churning that the parent doesn't recognize. And the child... I'll give you another one that, that I'm seeing it with statistics and articles I'm reading. There's a dirty little secret of the homeschool world. Again, I'm not against homeschool. We homeschooled in the younger years. We chose to send our kids to public school for high school, but we've homeschooled. There's huge benefits to homeschool. I'm not against it. But here's something that I'm reading about and seeing. High numbers of young ladies in homeschool families who are cutting themselves or have eating disorders. What is going on? They feel so controlled by their mother, right? I'm never away from this dear woman. She just scripts my whole life, what I wear, what I think, what I, you know, because you can. And it's their way of just trying to somehow say, I will control something, what I eat, what I, is this making sense? And so it's like something that could be good has become destructive because it's excessive, excessive, excessive. It leads to disappointment, disillusionment, and you'll end up demanding far more from people around you. Number two, what is going on? Why is this so important? Idolatry is rooted in the desires of your own heart, so there's no one to blame for it. We live in a culture that loves blame, right? All you got to do is turn on the afternoon talk shows, and you'll find someone sitting in a chair on a stage, and I mean... Their life and where they are is all about someone failed them. And, and that also is epidemic now today. I can't tell you how many people, the daughter or the son, go into counseling. Sadly, not biblical counseling. 
I was just in Denver helping a church doing some consulting that wanted to shift towards biblical counseling. And do you know why? I mean, there was a number of reasons why. But one of the top reasons was one of the elders in that church in Denver, his adult daughter got Christian counseling over at Denver Seminary, which I'm sad to say is not biblical counseling. And as she got counseling, because it's really the secular model with just a few Bible verses sprinkled around it, she was counseled to cut them off and put distance between it. Now she doesn't speak to them, and I'm hearing this all the time. Now somehow it's your fault for where I am. And, and she had a terrible relationship with a terrible guy and broke up, and to get over the pain of all that, she went into counseling. In the process of this Christian counseling, she took him back and now hates her parents. And I'm having dinner with this elder and his wife who are brokenhearted over the confusion. And they said, tell us about biblical counseling. Again, it's not one incident. I'm seeing this all over the place. We have a culture and a model today of any suffering, any difficulties you're experiencing, it can't be you. Got to be someone else. Even, I'm sure you're hearing it here. It breaks my heart. I was, uh, I was listening, I hope this doesn't shock you. I was listening to secular radio. Uh, oldies 103.5 <laughs> and I, that, that's when music was good they didn't use the f word it's journey it's boston it's good and uh, i'm driving i'm driving up to cincinnati to do some after christmas shirt shopping you know when nice shirts are half off and it was my mission for that day because my wife was out of town i got the radio on i heard this commercial twice i was like i think i'm gonna lose my mind it was all about addictions and it literally said, addiction is a disease, not a decision. Your loved one has made no decision. It has nothing to do with them. They're not responsible, and you need to understand that. I was like, oh, yes, it's hard, but that's not helping. That is not helping, and it's not true. When you no longer hold a person responsible for any of their choices, that doesn't send them in a better new direction. We're going to see, I hope this doesn't offend you. Also, I'll just tell you what else ticked me off that day. There was some ginormous billboard, and it said, homelessness could happen to anyone. Now, I want to be careful. I sort of understand what they're saying, but in a sense, do you know what they're saying? It's not their fault either that I'm thinking, I don't believe that because I lived in a mobile home and worked three jobs and made $10,000 a year and chose not to eat meat and not buy snacks, right? That's how we weren't homeless. We lived on what I made and it was not easy and it lasted a long time. Now please know there's, there's a place for, when I was a little boy, homeless people always looked older like they'd been to Vietnam. Now, I'm serious, now the homeless people are 24 and they're standing, it's a guy standing there with a sign at the end of my exit ramp and I'm like, dude, get a job. I don't think it just happened to him. Almost always they're on drugs and they don't want to work. They don't want to be responsible. Again, I know someone here might just be so ticked, but that's what I think. When you take off the table decisions and personal responsibility and heart issues, you're not helping, but that's the culture we have now. Ooh, idolatry is rooted in our own desires, so you cannot blame anyone else for it. Let me take you to my, my favorite Old Testament passage to inform us about the heart. So let me go ahead and tell you, we're gonna get to it later today, but my two go-to passages, one is Old Testament, one is new. The Old Testament is Ezekiel 14, one to eight. 
We're about to go there. The New Testament is James 4, 1 to 3. Those two passages are some of the best and most insightful passages for framing up our heart. What is going on? Ezekiel 14, 1 to 8. James 4, 1 to 3. Let's go to Ezekiel 14, 1 to 8 and dig in there a little bit. Ezekiel 14, 1 to 8. Look at it as I begin reading in verse 1. Now, some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. This is God speaking. And the word of the, no, this is Ezekiel speaking, excuse me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, so this is God telling Ezekiel, say this to these guys that have come. Son of man, these men, these men have set up their idols. Where? In their hearts. And put before them that which causes them to stumble into a So who did it? They did it. Is it an external idol? No, internal. These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them. Now here's here's a, an insight from this passage. I'm always look, looking for patterns in the Bible. Whenever you see God repeat himself, it's not that he needed a better editor. Like, wow, I think you said that. When I see repetition, I say, God's trying to get us our attention. You're gonna see a phrase three times in these eight verses. Here's the first one. They've put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. See, here's the other exciting thing about beginning to understand your heart and getting a hold of idols of the heart. If you can begin to understand this better, you can avoid a whole lot of other sins because idols blind you and bind you. They blind you to things, oh, I'll be sitting with people brokenhearted. I'm more brokenhearted over their life and their family and how it's impacting loved ones than they are. It's like they're blind to what their sin is doing, but they want what they want. And so they just continue to stumble and step into other sin. It causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, every one of the house of Israel who... Here's the second time he's going to say, who does it and where is it? Sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him, here's the second time that says what it does, what causes him to stumble into iniquity. And then comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. And here's what I think is interesting about that, that phrase. I will answer him according to the multiple, multitude of his idols. Here's another insight about prayer. Do you realize when you are interacting with God, you may be asking for him to do this or do that or work in her, work in him. When he sees idols raging in your own heart, that's his top priority. That's what he wants to talk to you about. He doesn't want to move on to anything else. That's what he wants to talk to you about, what he sees in your own heart, which is going to match something we're going to touch on later today where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, First, get the log out of your own eye. Then you can see more clearly. God always wants to start with us. You got a problem, you got a conflict in your marriage with your kids, with a coworker, with a church member. He always wants to start with you. What, where's your heart? What is going on? Let's first talk about that. He says, I'm gonna answer that one who comes according to the multitude of his idols. And you find yourself, God, I wasn't asking you about that. He says, I don't care. That's what I wanna talk to you about. Hit pause, let's talk about your heart. You ever had one of those moments where God begins to, to reveal something and convict you? And you're like, wait a minute, God, this is not where this conversation began. <laughs> God always wants to bring it back 
to you and your heart. Now don't hear me saying no one else is ever at fault. There's never a place to rebuke someone else or help someone see their own sin. He just says first, first, first. Because idols, until your own heart has been addressed, you're not even seeing other people as clearly as you think. And you're gonna stumble into iniquity. Verse five, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart. God doesn't want lip service. God doesn't want just some obedient behavior. God is after our heart. He wants our heart. He wants our heart. He wants our heart. You, you think even in Revelation 2, verse 4, where, where the apostle John heard Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. It, here's what I think is interesting. In almost every instance, when you read those first few chapters of Revelation, he commends Every group, there's very commendable things about them. He doesn't say, you're totally off the rails. He'll say, I see you this, I see you this, I see you this, and then he'll say, but I have this against you. And with Ephesus in, in Revelation 2, 4, he says, I have this against you. You have left your, say it, first love, first love. He's after our heart. He's not okay when you say, well, I'm teaching Sunday school now, and I'm leading a small group, and but my heart's kind of somewhere else. There's been some drift. God's like, I don't care what else you're doing right. Oh, I want you to be living with your heart first, mine, first, mine, first, mine. Because, into verse five, the reason he wants to seize the house of Israel by their heart, they are all estranged from me by their idols. So here's what I was talking about. When you have idols at play, it will cause you to feel distant from God and diff, you know, I meet with people often like I just I just haven't felt close to the Lord I haven't felt that intimacy I haven't and often they'll just think I need a new study Bible I need colored pencils and I'm not against colored pencils I love circling verbs and underlying stuff I'm serious but you can circle verbs and you can get better praise music and you can get a new John MacArthur study Bible but if your heart has drifted and shifted somewhere else unbeknownst to you and you've begun to build your world around the kids or around your career or around image or around whatever you're going to feel this what what is missing i just because god is a jealous god isaiah 42 he will not share his glory with your daughter he will not share his glory with your career he will not share his and and it's not that he's just some egomaniac it's that yes he's worthy of being glorified, and you'll never be more happy. He's a good God. Since you were created to live for His glory, oh, He wants you to have real joy, real sense of purpose, real peace, and that comes when you're living in alignment with how He made you. Does that make sense? So He's gonna, he's gonna focus on this. Verse six, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from your abominations for he's going to go after this for the third time now not because the holy spirit needed a better editor you know as human beings would think give me the reader's digest version uh-uh therefore say to the house of israel repent verse 7 for anyone of the house of israel or the strangers who dwell in israel who separates himself from me third time and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him 
That's what causes him to stumble into iniquity. And then comes to the prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. We do it. But you don't know you've done it. I didn't know I'd done it. And, and so therefore it causes massive confusion. We're going to have a whole hour on how this affects your relationships. Because I wasn't able to announce to Vicki, hey, you know, I, I'm sure she, I understand now why she was so disoriented in our marriage because I had pursued her hotly. I mean, I pursued. This was not just casual. Yeah, I'd like to marry you. I mean, I'm type A. I decided I wanted her. And I mean, I, today it would be called stalking, but this was the early 80s. <laughs> this was the early 80s. Praise God, I didn't go to prison. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I mean, it went from like, this man really, really wants me. Now, she didn't know everything I was doing. But I mean, I could see from the men's dorm to the middle girl's dorm. That is a long way. That's like four football fields. But I would stand at my window and I would wait. I had good eyes back then. And I could see her about that big come out of the door. I knew all the dresses she had. She didn't have many. We were both poor. And here she comes down that main sidewalk. I'm like, oh, go now. If I go now, we'll both hit the crosswalk at the same time. We'll turn. I'm like, oh, you're going to the cafeteria? Me too. Want to eat together? Like it just happened. It didn't just happen. I've been standing here for 30 minutes to see her come out. I would just play ping pong in the student center till my arm was sore near the mailboxes waiting for her to check mail. Hey, I could go on. You know, I invited myself to her parents' house for Christmas to meet them. That's, that's awkward, but not to me because I thought, we've got to get going on this. Until I meet your parents, this will not lead to marriage. She was in the middle of a serious relationship with someone else at Georgia Tech, and I did not care. I was like, you know? He's at Georgia Tech. I'm right here. And I was like, I can come to your parents' house this Christmas and meet your parents. And she's like, I didn't invite you to meet my parents. <laughs> and I mean, I, I still even remember, because I, I, I was poor, so I was working in the snack bar for book money, and I had finished on a Friday night doing the hamburgers, and I ran to the library because I wanted to see if I could find her. There's all these cubicles, just this massive floor of cubicles. But I also knew the shoes that she has, she only had three pairs. Remember that brand Agner? Remember that way back then? No, that's how old it is. It was a big deal. Agner purses, Agner shoes, ladies. But see, it's gone. G-O-N-E. But I would look at feet, and I could find her. And again, I could casually drift that way. Oh, you're studying. So I find her, and she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to meet somebody. She goes around the corner, and this is Mike Coley from Georgia Tech. I could not have been more disheartened. But, and, and the next morning, I was, it was a Sunday, I was part of a team that would go to a juvenile delinquent center and teach the Bible. And uh, so we would meet in the girls' dorm foyer to pray before we went, sitting there praying, but I also knew what it sounded like, her, her walk even sounded like. So I hear it, clickety click, 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 that is Vicki Dill. I open one eye, I'm like, oh, there she is in all her loveliness. Oh. And then I, Raise up like this to look out the window, and she gets in a green Thunderbird. I didn't even own a car. <laughs> I had a gray hoodie sweatshirt. But you know what? In that moment, I thought, no. It's not going down like this, Mr. Thunderbird. No. No. And I have her. But <laughs> I say all that to say, right? It went from that Imagine the disillusionment of this woman. I didn't see it at the time, but now I can look back and say, poor thing. And what did I do? 
I just shifted. Done. Now all the guys can relate to this and all your women are like, how do you guys do that? Yeah, I know, it's sad. But it's like, now I'm married, what else? And I shifted towards ministry. I'm a brand new youth and music guy and I wanna be the best. Do you see what just happened? And here we go. I'm working 80, 100 hours a week on this and I want this to be excellent. And she's just like, hello. It, I did it and I had no idea that I'd done it. So not that it would have been less painful, but it would have been less confusing if I had announced to her early at a breakfast in our marriage, now you do realize I'm done pursuing you. (laughs) That box has been checked. I'm very type A and I have other aspirations now and I would love to have sex and have a conversation every now and then, but I will be about other things largely. It doesn't get announced and that's why there's so much confusion in our relationships. It just happens and other people are like, what just happened? but the person doing it is clueless, right? If you get, even, even like the counseling I have right now, he had an awakening moment where he did say, which was very helpful, because I'm gonna talk about it here in a minute, some of our idolatry, it begins to get a hold of us as a child. That's when some of this settles in, and that's why it's so hard. Some of you, this has been your thing, and he acknowledged, which was very helpful. His wife is a pharmacist, and she's apparently brilliant, he says, and she doesn't argue. She just sits there and lets him say it. And he says, always in my, as a child, I've always been afraid of being dumb, afraid of being dumb, afraid of being dumb. Well, he takes that into their marriage, and he always has to be right, even when he's wrong. He cannot say he's wrong, because he doesn't want, and that's, so w- w- it was an amazing moment a few weeks ago when he said, because I keep saying to my counselees, Consider what what it must be like to live with you. (laughs) Try to get outside of your body and think, what must it be like to live with me? And so it was a great moment and we said, this was happening with us. I was thinking what I normally think. I was about to say what I normally say, but I thought, wait a minute. What must it be like to live with me? And I rethought it from her perspective. This was such a glorious moment. I threw both hands up in the counseling thing. I said, He said, and then I realized, I'm actually wrong. I said, that is wonderful. Now, it needs to happen like a million more times, but you are on the right path now. That would change how you relate to someone. Does this make sense? But this started early in his life, and he brought it into his marriage, this idol of, I'm gonna protect this, and this is what I live for, and this is... Ezekiel tells us, we did it. So idols will bind you. They end up enslaving you. You think it will lead to freedom and what you want, but it enslaves you and it blinds you, keeps you from seeing people the way you should and danger and sin the way you should because you'll do whatever to get this or protect this and preserve this. In a sense, it idolatry twists your own view of self We end up with a false identity, your view of God, and your view of others. So this is not a little thing. This this affects all of life on so many levels. That's why Psalm 106 verse 36 says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. It became a trap, a snare. And so, as I said, with some of you, depending on how you grew up, my heart does go out to people in a fallen, broken world, right? So it's not that it's like, whatever, you did this. 
My heart goes out to them because there's so much brokenness and, and things that you wish someone had not been raised by that, that way. Think about it. If you grew up in an alcoholic home, as I've been a pastor for 35 years now and done counseling for 30, here's what I've learned. If you grew up in an alcoholic home, you grew up in a home that was filled with unpredictability, chaos, and embarrassment. You, were off, you didn't want anyone to come over because you didn't know if your mom would be passed out on the couch. You didn't want people to come over because you didn't know if your dad would, would, would arrive home raging, right? So you live kind of this secret life of trying even as a child to control everything. And so without realizing it, you adopt this, I must be in control. I'm, I'd never want to have that sense of chaos again. And God never designed us to be in control and try to do it ourselves. And you take that with you. I've got this one young man. He, he saved. I say young man. He's 41 now. <laughs> when you're 59, he's young. But I've known him 26 years. So he came into our church. And oh, this is a guarded, you know, cards close to his chest kind of guy. But as I got to know him, he grew up in a home where they moved 14 times. And he would just be at the end of the driveway with two paper sacks with everything he owns. So he adopted a mentality of I'm never gonna live that way again. I will be in control. That's an idol. God, God meant for us to be dependent on him. But as he had this, it was affecting his relationships on multiple levels with God and others. You think about if you grew up in a home with, of divorce. I see this repeatedly Again, if you're from a home of divorce or you've experienced it and you're divorced right now, don't hear me throwing you under the bus. My heart goes out to you, but it is a lie, the books that are written. Children are so resilient, you know, it's better for them to go ahead and divorce rather than people hear, they hear arguing, yada, yada, yada. Divorce affects kids tremendously on into their adult life because here's what I've spotted. P often kids who are in a home of divorce they decide, I will never trust again. I can't trust people. I just sat with a 17-year-old young man just a couple months ago. We had a youth night of prayer, and I love to pray. And so the student leader said, we need some elders who would be willing to have, you know, elders will pray for you. You can just come in this room, share whatever, and, and they'll pray for you. I said, oh, I would love to do that. So I sit in this cafe area on a couch for two and a half hours, and kids can just come to me one at a time, share whatever they want, and I'll pray for them. I heard more than once, but this one 17-year-old ma young man, he was just brokenhearted, and he just said, I love my dad. I want to know my dad. There's so much I want to experience with him, but I don't trust him. He lied and lied and lied and lied and lied, saying there wasn't another woman, and there was, and now he's with her, and I can still go see him, but it's this, and it had totally affected him, that he, and he literally said, I don't trust anyone. Well, see, if he's not careful, he's going to adopt. I'll take care of myself. And here's what I also see. They want love, but when you decide I will never be hurt again, and you live like this, you can't ever truly love again. Will that affect this young man as he goes into a marriage with a young woman? Yes. And so it's not like, well, that's just, the, that's just me and my dad, that deal. That, that's, it's, none of these things are isolated. These things that happen and these mentalities that you adopt and where you let your heart go affects all your future. That's why I say to people when I'm working with someone with a remarriage and it's a biblical remarriage, woo, it's not like, yeah, I still hate her, but I'd love to start. No, no. If you're bitter, 
that bitterness will affect your new relationship. Hebrews 12, 15 says, look out amongst you. Beware lest there be any root of bitterness. You fall short of the grace of God and it's springing up defiles many these things affect others around you i could go on whether you grew up poor and you decide i will never be poor again we will always have enough money what happens you just begin to live for the security of money and you don't realize it but it's like i'm trying to be my own god and god says no or or you have i hear this a lot you had a father i wish it wasn't so true who never said good job no matter what you did, you could have a report card that had seven A's and one B. He'd say, let's talk about this B. What's this about? And we laugh when you see it in movies, but it's sad. It's in real life. It's in real life. And oh, that child adopts. I, they are so longing for approval. They head out into life. And I'm like, I've got to prove myself. I must hear, well done. And so they begin to live for the approval of other people. I could never get it from my dad, but I'm gonna get it in truckloads now, in spades. And here's what's tricky. Remember we started with Jeremiah 2? You go to a different well and you dig. What kind of well is it? What's the problem with that? It's broken. And so I watch these people. Enough is never enough. It's never, you have to say, well, when will you be okay? I don't know, but not yet, right? It's the same thing with money. It doesn't matter what, how much you have, you just think, I don't know, but it, it, not yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. When you drift or intentionally shift as a result of a pain or trial, it's broken. It's broken. You'll never get there. You'll never get there. So the origin of some of our idolatry and heart issues starts early. So granted, my heart goes out to these people but still, the best thing to do is not to say, oh, I understand, here's a label. You will forevermore be this. That's not hopeful. The power of the gospel and God's spirit and his grace and mercy offers hope for real change, to live more free and hopeful. So where do you see idolatry in the Bible? Well, in the Old Testament, it is the straight-up characteristic word, idol. Not hard to spot, like in Ezekiel 14. Right there it is, idols. In the New Testament, most often it's the word desires or lust. It's the Greek word epithumia. Whenever the Greeks put the prefix epi in front of a word, it means it heightens it. It's a heightened, woo! Any desire that's strong enough that it motivates behavior. Epithumia. Paul talks about this desire in Ephesians 2 when he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then in, in, in chapter 4, he moves on and says in verses 20 to 22, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard of him, been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, notice the phrasing, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful, that's a helpful modifier in front of it. These desires are deceitful, they deceive you. You think, yeah, if I, if I got that, I'd be satisfied. No, it wouldn't. 
the heart just starts to belch out a new set of idols. You know, if you make marriage an idol, I must be married. I'll never be happy till I'm married. And, and I understand it's natural to desire marriage. God made us that way. We're relational. God is a relational God in the Trinity. So this is not an unhealthy thing that you desire relationship. But if you make it a little God and say, ah, inevitably you get there and it's not all you thought because now you're married and you find out how hard it is. You know, I have singles in our church like, Pastor Brad, I just don't get it. What are you talking about? I'm just like, get married and you won't be asking me this. It's like, it is great. I get it. I mean, there was this woman who's 45. She'd never been married before. And she's about to marry this guy in our church. This will be his fourth marriage. And he had a teenage difficult son. And I did everything I could to help her know how hard this was going to be. It, it wasn't unbiblical to get remarried. We sorted out all the details. But I knew this will rock your ever-living world, woman. <laughs> like, I know you think you've always wanted to be I did everything I could. And you can just see it in their face like, Six weeks after the wedding, six weeks, that's all it took. We happened to be in the same hallway on Sunday morning. We had three services at that time and I'm just scooting on my way to where I need to go. She's coming towards me, it's just us. Her eyes are big and she gets up to me and she's like, oh, I get it now. I was like, okay, I'll pray for you. Yeah, yes, you just, it's just not all, you're just like, just like I said, I, I literally stalked this woman, Vicki Dill. And then when we got married, I was like, you're driving me nuts. You leave door, drawers slightly open. Why? All the way. All the way. How hard is it? Oh, I cannot go the additional inch. Why are drawers partially open? Why are cabinets ajar? Why is the tape not back in the tape drawer? So the next person that needs tape, there it is. Where's the tape? In the tape drawer. When you leave it where you used it last, that's so selfish. Look what I was up against, imagine. <laughs> and then she's living with a man that's so non-relational and task-oriented. Oh, so you don't have to have heinous sin like adultery and abuse to have a bad marriage. Ours was over drawers partially open, etc. But all of a sudden you're like, I think I'm gonna lose my, because you just shift. Everything about them that I wanted so badly, now it just seems like all I see is everything about them that drives me crazy, you know? Because then every event we were at, she wants to leave. I'm tired. I'm like, girl, you're bringing me down. Good stuff happens towards the end. Not like drunk with a lampshade, but I, I was used to staying. I like people. She's ready to go. It's like, oh, my word. What is going on? There you go. If you're married, you know what's going on. I like my music so loud you can feel it in your chest. The bass is like, I think the bass player is here. She would like the music so soft, like maybe like off. I'm like, I love music. I mean, before there was Bluetooth and all that, young people, I mean, when you really loved music, you just went and bought ginormous speaker cords. That's what I did. I could, and, and back in the day, we had these huge speakers. Now you got these cool bows that are about that big and sound way better. But I could drag, I could drag my speaker on my shoulder into the bathroom while I showered. I drug it out into the driveway while I washed my car. If you could do life with music, do it. And then I married this woman that could care less, even though she did handbells at Sherwood. She doesn't care about music. I was just like, oh. And then I love reading books, like for real, from beginning to end, and you think while you read. And she likes thumbing through magazines backwards, blurting things out. And I'm like, I can't think, girl. I can't, this is justification with John Piper. 
you're messing me up. So I just keep glancing up like, really? Really, you're talking again. <laughs> just, that was it. Now be encouraged, I've repented of all of that. <laughs> Seriously, or we still wouldn't be married, right? I was like, I had to, so the old hunched over guy had it right, die to self. I was like, all right. When my wife begins to talk, you don't just glance up at her like, what in the world? You put your book down, and you look very interested, and you say, tell me more. Oh, tell me more. And, and when, when, when she gets home from the grocery store, you turn the music off. I'll have it so loud while she's gone on errands, but I can feel the garage door opener in the floor. And I just start running towards the bows to turn it off. Now, here's what's sweet. This is really sweet. She knows I love it. I know she hates it. She's coming up the stairs yelling. She would have to yell because it's so loud. Oh, no, 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 you can leave it on. I'm in the middle of trying to turn it off. She's saying I can leave it on. Isn't that sweet? That's where you can get. She knows what I love. I know what she loves. And instead of both of us digging in and trying to prove who's most right and, and, and winning a war, we're preferring each other. But oh, in the early days, wow. Whew. These desires are deceitful. It can happen to anyone. And often, extreme emotions are associated often with a heart issue. Emo don't hear me saying emotions are sinful and bad. I'm, it's great that God made us emotional creatures. Like on Sunday when I told you, that emotion of standing there reading 16, God is totally sovereign in control of the universe and the nations, it felt good. I'm glad we have feelings. When you have a great meal, when you hear great music, when you have a great conversation, when you see a sunset, wonderful that we have feelings. The danger is excessive, over-the-top, out-of-proportion emotions. You should often consider, should I trace that back? What is going on in my heart? Why did I feel that angry so quickly? Why do I feel that frantic and anxious over that so often? Emotions are nothing more than dashboard lights, right? You know, typically it isn't wise. If you see a light on your dash, the, the one that drives me crazy is check engine light. Like what, check and see if I have an engine? I think I do. We're moving. What does that even mean? And my mechanic has helped me understand it could mean 1,000 different things. Check engine light. And, and if you drive used cars, which I do, mine's at 2010. So then there's the joy of these lights are on and they shouldn't be. I have a light on right now that says one of my tires are low. It's not. It says check engine now. I have one. It shouldn't be there. I have this other thing that shows the car sliding. It says VPD. I don't even know what the guy said it means. That shouldn't be on. So I just put black electrical tape, tape on top of all those. So I do drive with black because I just can't take it. I'm type A. It's like I don't want to see those lights. I just covered them all up. But normally that's not wise. If you have a newer vehicle, you should trace that light back to the source. It's telling you something. I mean, I, I paid $700 for some e-vapor canister to be replaced to get that one your car is sliding to go away. And in six weeks it came back on. I'm like, well, I'm not doing that again. For $700, I can take some electrical tape and just put it over top of that. And if I slide one day, I slide. God is in control, right? <laughs> he's on his throne, and he's in my car with me. <laughs> it's like, ah. You know, but just think about how you respond to life and circumstances. 
You know you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty about anything. And, and again, this is, you have to be careful. Of course, naturally by human nature, we don't like uncertainty. So sometimes this can get, be hard to get your hands around. We're talking about inordinate, beyond. And here's how I like to think of it. It's, it's eating you up to the extent that it's keeping you from fulfilling your God-given responsibilities. It's debilitating, right? So you, you know it, you know, if you're curled up in bed saying, mama, 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 probably, probably excessive. This is not good. That you're not moving forward and able to fulfill normal God-given responsibilities. You could have an idol of approval where your greatest nightmare is rejection from anyone. None of us like rejection, but it's like, oh, oh. And the operative word is, not just that was painful, that was difficult, that was unpleasant, it was devastating. It shouldn't be devastating. All right, that wasn't fun, but I know who I am in Christ. Approval idol, comfort idol, power idol. You know, there's people that just, they have to have the dominant position. They have to have what is going on. There, there may be some point in their life which they felt weak and out of control, and now they're overcompensating. God, God designed us to live for His glory and to live dependent on Him. I actually need Him. At the very heart of this, so much of this is just, you're trying to be God. You just don't do a very good job of it. It's like, oh, devastated, devastated. Number three, idolatry is just a shallow substitute for Christ that always leaves you thirsty and looking for more. Because when you go down the path of idolatry, there is an initial sense of, ah, but it's like drinking salt water, ocean water. You know, anyone that's, if you re read any of those books like Unbroken and things like that where you're adrift for, you know the temptation they faced. We're surrounded by water. I'm parched. But the moment you scoop your hand down in that ocean water and toss it up into your mouth, you will have a momentary sense of relief and then everything will get far worse because it was salt water. That's what idolatry is like. So I wish I could say to you, when you go there, there's absolutely no sense of satisfaction. It's not true. That's why we get in trouble as much as we do. There can be an initial sense of, oh, well, I'll give you a perfect example. When I'm working with troubled marriages, I never counsel separation unless there's abuse. That's not a path towards reconciliation. But the world counsels it all the time. You just need some space. You need to find yourself disastrous. Everyone I see who separates, here's what happens. He's in an apartment on his own now. What do you think happens? Like, oh my goodness. Whew. Should have done this forever ago. I love just being with me. I love not having to deal with her. Ah. And so there's a sense of it being right. And it's deceptive. It's not right. You have a fall. Even like the couple I'm working with now, they're mentally now trying to think more right, like when he gave that example, and, and then I concluded, I'm wrong. He's still doing that in his office, and she's still where he left her. I said, that's great, that's a step one, but did you go back to her and say, will you please forgive me, I actually was wrong. He's like, no. I said, that's where we need to go next. That's what actually brings, so they're kinda in a sense just trying to keep peace 
We want more than pseudo peace. We just don't fight like we used to. We want oneness. We want the walls to come down. We want to be invested. And so it's, you go further. If you're not careful, there's things that can feel right. There are people that one of their idols is, I avoid conflict at all costs. The Bible actually doesn't teach that. You realize? The Bible says be a peacemaker. It's a lot, like we've got excess in our culture now of such provocation. But there's a pseudo peace sometimes just saying I avoid conflict at all costs. That is not godly. There's an appropriate place, and I always say to my counselees, start it this way. Hey, can I get your help on something? That's what Vicky and I decided. Instead of, you did it again. You always. That doesn't begin well. So I'm like, but now we've been doing this so long, I know what, what this is. And she's like, hey, can I get your help on something? I'm like, oh, God of the heavens, help me. <laughs> she's about to tell me something about me, not good. <laughs> sure, baby love. <laughs> and then I just think, don't argue, don't interrupt, don't argue, don't interrupt. But at least that's a nicer way to begin, you know? Because she used to just begin, you! I call it the falcon has landed. Ah! Just tearing off hunks of flush. I was like, don't do that. Don't, don't. Just sit, especially not at 10 o'clock at night. I just lay down in bed. That's when she wants to talk. I'm like, no, no, no. When I lay down, I want to sleep. Like, sit up, turn the light on, talk. But when the light goes out, sleep. Anyway. <laughs> Idolatry is just a shallow substitute for Christ that will always leave you thirsty, longing for more. Look at how Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John 4. Remember, she's coming out to the city at an odd time to get water because she was an outcast. And he knew that, and he reached out to her. But he knew that it wasn't just her bucket that was empty of water. Her heart was longing for something. And, and this, is, this is, we're surmising here, but it's, it's possible that she had tried to use men, men to fill that void. She'd already had five husbands or four husbands, and the guy she was living with was not her husband. And, and Jesus recognized her thirst and offered her living water. He offers us living water. So many of us have turned to something else. If I had kids, if I was married, if I had a different job, if, 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 all of it will leave you thirsty. Nothing short of vibrant relationship with Jesus with my heart where it's supposed to be. Number four, idolatry requires a specific plan of action and repentance because it'll never go away on its own. It's not, you know, time doesn't heal. That's also like a real, two things, you know, the culture has so many things that are said that are so not true. You know, sticks and stones may break my, make my bones, but words will never hurt me. Nothing more false has ever been said. Words have power. Our God is a word God. And that's why so many people are living with huge wounds. No one laid a hand on them, but words wounded them and damaged them and sometimes that's why they are living the way they live Poof. it's not just going to go away time doesn't just heal you want to say god why why do i feel so uneasy in these situations why do i get so angry about this or so fearful about this is there something and you don't have to be a certified biblical counselor to get a hold of this remember what i told you what's a prayer you can pray psalm 139 23 24 Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. See if there be any anxious way in me. Lord, why? Why? 
What is going on? Because I want, you, you may even say, I don't want to keep reacting to my daughter that way. I don't want to be so bristly with my husband about that. I don't want to, when, with friends, I don't want to expect so much. I expect so much of friendships and I feel like I'm always disappointed. Sometimes I'll hear this story from someone and it's just this story of everybody has disappointed them. Now there is a possibility that could have happened, but you guys, the greater possibility is notice in every one of these situations, the common denominator, you were there. And, and there's just everybody falls short. How is that possible? Is it not possible that you come into every relationship expecting so much that it crushes people? And I, I have certain people in our church that they're so needy that it, it drives people away because they just think, I can't give you all that you need. We were designed and created to be satisfied in Him and yet appropriately desire relationships. And then we go into them very satisfied in Him, having sat at the feet of Jesus, knowing He loves us, knowing He accepts us, knowing He's for us, knowing we're forgiven, knowing our identity is in Christ knowing that we have an inheritance, knowing that we have a robe of righteousness, that there's no condemnation right now, and then when you're fully aware of that and delighting in all that, you can relate to other people much, much better. So Scott pointed you towards the little exercise I gave you on, see it, you know, take some time to say, God, what might some of my idols be? But then don't just leave it at that. Take some time now at the end of this to consider what would a plan of repentance look like? Because I've given you a repentance plan. Right now I'm working with my counselees. All right, I, they've identified their top five idols where they think their heart goes, and I've got them writing new thinking. What should I think about that? Not what I've been thinking, but what should I think? And now, some new behavior, how I'm going to. And then it's most appropriate to memorize some scripture. So I'm not against scripture memory. I'm just against scripture memory alone until you see your heart. Say, God, what's going on in my heart? What have I been saying to myself? What have I been thinking, believing? I give you my heart. Bring me back. Oh, God, I pray that you would make us aware of our heart so that we can know you more, as Scott started us off, really know you because, our, because we're not chasing after something else and then really love other people because we don't need so much from them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.